0: where it says, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. Avoid godless chatter, because those who indulge in it will become more and more ungodly. Their teaching will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have wandered away from the truth. They say that the resurrection has already taken place, and they destroy the faith of some. Nevertheless, God's solid foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, The Lord knows those who are his, and everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes, and some are for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he will be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the Master and prepared to do any good work. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not quarrel. Instead, he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him, he must gently instruct, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. But mark this, there will be terrible times in the last days, They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as Janus and Jembras oppose Moses, so also these men oppose the truth, men of depraved minds who, as far as their faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Thanks, Carl.
1: Well, we're, uh, we're starting a, a new series this morning, a, a short series, or relatively short, uh, uh, on the, the doctrine of the church. Uh, we're going to be thinking about what uh, the church is like what it does, uh, how it operates, what it looks like, how it relates to God, to the Father, to the Son, to the Holy Spirit uh, and, and hopefully over that we'll kind of reshape uh, our minds and our understanding of what the Church uh, of God is. But this morning uh, I want to begin not with uh, thinking oddly enough about what the Church actually is but, but by thinking about what our expectations of the Church are. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had that experience uh, where someone has told you that uh, some movie is the best movie that they've ever seen. And they said, you know, you have to go and see the new Muppet movie. And, uh, and so you go and brave uh, the embarrassment, you know, of going to the cinema to see a film like that. And you're bitterly disappointed, bitterly disappointed uh, at, at the film. Uh, and you go and you go, well, well, what a waste of time and money that was. Uh, or perhaps you've had the opposite experience where someone says uh, this is the worst uh, book or the worst film uh, that you've ever read, uh, 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 the worst book that you've ever read uh, and so you avoid reading this book for 10 years only to pick up you know, Pride and Prejudice 10 years later and discover that it's one of the best books that you've ever read. Uh, I don't know how many people that's happened to but... Uh, But there you go. Uh, 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 Have you ever had that problem of false expectations? You know, expectations being built up and then shattered or expectations being kind of brought low and then being pleasantly surprised? Well, if wrong expectations can be unfortunate when it comes to books uh, and to movies, they can be crippling when it comes to the church. Curiously enough, I think people both expect too much from the Church, they, they expect it to be better than it really is and at the same time they hope for too little from the Church. And this morning I'm hoping to address that by looking at, at two passages uh, which talk about in the first place the desire of the Church, that's 2 Timothy, and then Ephesians 3 which, which goes on to show us just a glimpse, I think, of the glory of the Church. Uh, I have to acknowledge before we get into that first passage that a lot of what I'm going to say this morning has been influenced by a series of talks by a guy named Peter Adam. Uh, They're called The Making of the Man of God. You can get them at the Gospel Coalition website. Uh, And a lot of what he has said in those talks really reshaped my own understanding of ministry uh, and of the church. Uh, But since... He stole his ideas from God and Paul. Uh, I don't feel so bad uh, taking his ideas and then uh, re-saying uh, them this morning. But the first passage that we're looking at is, uh, is that one in 2 Timothy. Uh, and 2 Timothy is a letter, uh, if you don't know, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul, the first, probably the first church planter and evangelist. And he's writing to Timothy, his protege, another church planter and evangelist, Uh, And in that letter Paul is addressing uh, the fact that in Timothy's church there are people who are teaching lies and undermining the faith. Uh, Paul says that the lies are like gangrene. Uh, So it just keeps on spreading. Every time it spreads you have to cut a bit more off. Uh, So these lies keep on uh, spreading the church, they're killing the church uh, and bits keep being lopped off. Uh, and it's in that context that Paul says something quite shocking really uh, about the nature of the church. Look at verse, uh, at verse 20. Paul says, In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purposes and some for ignoble. What Paul is saying is, is that the church is a mixture of good and bad. The church is a mixture of useful and useless, of clean and unclean. The church, this side of Jesus' return, he's saying, will always be full of both true believers, true Christians, and false Christians as well. Uh, If you read a lot of the New Testament, you'll discover that most of it, most of the letters in particular, are addressed to churches who needed to sort out their sin, uh, the New Testament tells us about churches which are divided by church politics, where one group is following one leader and another group is following another leader. The New Testament tells us about a church where a guy was sleeping with his mother uh, with his stepmother. Uh, the New Testament tells us about churches uh, which were loveless, churches which were self-seeking, churches which are in danger of deserting the gospel, churches which are in danger of denying the divinity of Jesus. Churches which promoted immorality. Churches which sucked up to the rich and ignored the poor. The, uh, the letters to the seven churches in Revelation, you might know them, uh, they give a, a really quite disturbing uh, picture of what the church in those days was like. Uh, there is a church in those uh, out of those seven, a church which has lost its love for Christ. A church which is engaged in worshipping other gods. A church which is engaged in sexual immorality. There's a church which is involved in a kind of religious prostitution. Uh, and there's a church which is spiritually dead. But if all that wasn't bad enough, Paul here in uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 3 lets Timothy in on a bit of a prophecy from God about the dangers of the church in the last days. The last days uh, in the Bible is the period from Jesus' ascension to Jesus' Uh, return. So it, it covers uh, the church in Timothy's day and the church in our day as well. You might think uh, when we, you might have thought when we read through chapter three before the beginning of chapter three that Paul was talking uh, about the world, but he's not. He's talking about the the dangers of the church, the condition of the church. Uh, he mentions. Uh, Janus and Jambres who are two characters in the Old Testament and they were part of the Old Testament people of God. They were, they were you know, with the rest of the community of God uh, in the time of Moses and what Paul is saying is that their rebellion is a kind of a pattern of rebellion, uh, of, a kind of a pattern that the churches will, of the difficulty that the churches will face in the last days. So what difficulties will the church face? Well, this is what Paul says, what God says in verse 2. People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of the good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power, have nothing to do with them. Uh, the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak world women who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Thanks to the, uh, the news coverage in recent years, we don't need much imagination, I don't think, to kind of see these realities uh, in the church today. We know stories, don't we? We know stories of ministers uh, who've seduced women in their congregations. Uh, We've heard all too often in recent years about the reality of pedophiles who've used the church to perpetrate hideous, uh, unspeakable crimes uh, against children. Well, those are exactly in line with the kind of dangers that Paul said would come to the church in the time between Jesus' ascension and his final return. Beyond those things, Paul lists other things as well. Uh, There there are proud, ungrateful, boastful, treacherous, conceited people who make churches their home. That's what Paul is saying. Uh, People who have a form of godliness but deny its power. They look reasonable on the outside but the reality is that their lives are marred by a reckless indifference towards sin. You see, here is one of our greatest mistakes, I think, about the Church. We expect the Church to be perfect. We might not say that, but the reality is, is that that's what we expect. Because when we find that it isn't, we're bitterly disappointed and we're surprised. If the Apostles, uh, with all the help of the Holy Spirit, couldn't make the Church perfect in the first century, then what hope do we have? Not only that, God has never promised that the church will be perfect this side of Jesus' return. Here in 2 Timothy, God is showing that the church will always be mixed. In a large house, there's items of usefulness and items which aren't useful. The church will always be mixed, always in danger from corruption while we wait for the return of Jesus you see, while the gospel is a gospel of peace with God, the church is not a place, it's not a haven of peace. It's not a, a bastion of peace while everything is falling apart around us. The church is the front line on the battleground. It's a place where we, where we need to constantly fight against the corrupting influence of sin. The church will always be mixed as long as we await the return of Jesus. So that's the, that's the first thing, the, the reality of the mixed nature of the church. But how do we deal with that? Uh, how do we deal with the mixed nature of the church? It's tempting, uh, I think, one approach uh, is to just kind of uh, move from church to church. You know, the, the, the way that you deal with the mixed nature of the church is to leave. Uh, you know, people join a church only to discover that it's not perfect. Uh, they leave in a huff, they join another church, only to discover in six months, in a year's time, that that church isn't perfect either. And so on and on the cycle goes. Another uh, quite tempting approach is to become indifferent, is to just say, well, God said it would be mixed, uh, You know, It's too hard to fight against, we'll just leave it as it is and kind of wait and see what happens. But Paul tells Timothy not to take either of those two paths. In fact, what he tells him to do is to contend for the church and to labour for the Gospel, to fight for it. Well, how do we do that? The key, I think, to, to contending for the Gospel and to contending for the purity of the church is to understand the nature of the mixture, What's the difference between the two bits? How do you tell the difference between the two? It's finally important, I think, to understand what Paul isn't saying about the nature of the the mixture of the church. He's not saying that the church is a mixture of perfect people and imperfect people. He's not saying it's a mixture of sinless people and sinful people and that's the distinction. No, he's saying uh, that the distinction is between people who are indifferent to wickedness indifferent to sin versus people who flee sin and call on the name of Jesus. Look at verse 19. Nevertheless, God's foundation stands firm, sealed with this inscription, the Lord knows those who are his. And everyone who confesses the name of the Lord must turn away from wickedness. Paul just told Timothy, look, the church that you're ministering is, 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 is mixed. There are these false teachers who are leading people astray. Don't worry, God knows who are, who are his. Well, what do they look like? That everyone uh, who names the name of the Lord turn away from wickedness. Uh, or in verse 22, Paul identifies clean vessels as those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart and who flee the evil desires of youth and who pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace. So the dividing line between true believers and false Christians is that false Christians are indifferent to to error and indifferent to sin, while true Christians flee sin, pursue righteousness as they call on Jesus' name. So if you're here uh, this morning and your life, like all our lives, is marred by sin, and yet you find yourself fleeing from sin and pursuing righteousness and and desiring to follow Christ more closely, and as you do that, you're crying out to God for for forgiveness uh, and strength through Christ, then, here's the message of Paul to Timothy, then you are a member of the true church of God. True member of the church. If, on the other hand, uh, you attend church regularly every week, you always put... Uh, money in the collection bag Uh, when it's your turn to do morning tea on the roster, you always bring something you bring more than other people Uh, if that's the shape of your life and yet you don't find yourself fleeing sin uh, or pursuing righteousness or getting on your knees and crying out to God for, uh, for mercy and forgiveness and power to overcome sin, if you don't find that those things are a constant part of your life, then the message of Paul to Timothy is people who look like that aren't true members of the Church of God. So that's the nature of the mixture. But how does that help? How how does knowing that help Timothy contend for the purity of the Church and for the Gospel? What was Timothy to do? Uh, than in contending for the purity of the church. Well, Paul gives Timothy three components, uh, three ways uh, to deal with the, the uh, mixed church. The first is in verse 22. Uh, how is Timothy to respond is to do this. Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Uh, in other words, the first way that Timothy is to Deal with the mixed church is to work closely with those uh, who are the true To work closely with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart, and together with them flee sin and pursue righteousness and love and 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 faith. The second element is in verse, uh, verses twenty four to twenty six. Uh, Paul writes, "Don't have anything to do with foolish and stupid arguments, because you know they produce quarrels." Uh, and the Lord servants servant must not quarrel, and said he must be kind to everyone, able to teach, not resentful. Those who oppose him he must gently instruct, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. That is, there are those in the church who are going astray. They're being led astray by error. Uh, they're being led astray into sin. What is Timothy to do? He is to teach them with great patience and careful instruction. Without resentment, but with great patience and careful instruction. He's to work closely with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Those who are going astray, he's to teach with great patience and careful instruction. And the third element is in verse 5 of chapter 3, where Paul's talking about those people who, who, who are absolutely corrupt. Paul says, have nothing to do with them. That is, if after patient and gentle instruction a person seems to be hardened in sin and going astray more and more rather than fleeing sin and pursuing righteousness and calling on the name of Jesus, well then there comes a point when a person person seems to be absolutely corrupt like those people described at the beginning of chapter 3, there comes a point where you have to stop Uh, Any relationship with them and the leader of the church need to put them out of the church. In other words, there are these three ways, I I guess, require immense sensitivity and wisdom to apply, don't they? Uh, We need immense theological wisdom, I think. Uh, Theological distinction to be able to know where people are at. And which scenario applies? We have to studiously avoid the trap of thinking that every person in the church that we don't get on well with uh, or who causes us a bit of trouble, we have to avoid the trap of thinking that they must be an unbeliever. Rather we need to discern where a person is at, on what basis? Well, on the basis of observing whether they flee sin and pursue righteousness and call on Jesus' name. We have to avoid the trap of dealing with error by being impatient and unkind and resentful. We also have to avoid the trap of not dealing with sin and error. We have to avoid the trap of letting things just slide by. We have to avoid the trap of thinking that the best place for a person is in the church. Because some people are so desperately corrupt that they will destroy both the church and themselves as well. And the only way to protect the church and the only hope for waking that person up sometimes is to put them outside the church and the fellowship of the gospel. Well, that's the reality, unfortunately, of the church this side of Jesus' return. Uh, that's the reality, uh, and that's how we need to deal with it, with the, the reality of a mixed church. But if that's the condition of the church, and it's a sobering reflection, I think, then, you know, I, I suppose the question is, should we then be pessimistic about the church? Should we uh, give up on the church? You know, are those people right who who, who just leave, or, or are those people right who just uh, retreat to the kind of their own spiritual experience? Well in answer to answer that question, let's turn to Ephesians chapter three It's, a, it's astonishing, actually. If you've got a, you a letter in the New Testament on the church, you've got a book on the church, Ephesians is that book. It's amazing how much it deals with the church, uh, and the things it says about the church are, are astonishing. But, uh, but let's read from Ephesians chapter 3 uh, from verse 8. I'll just, let me read that. Paul says, Although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery which for ages past was kept hidden in God who created all things. His intent absolutely astonishing statements, I think, there in Ephesians chapter 3. The first uh, is in verse 10 where Paul says that God's intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. That is, the wisdom of God made known across the whole world, across the whole universe to everybody in it. How? Through the church. That's the first thing. The second thing is no less remarkable. In verse 21, Paul finishes uh, his prayer with this, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul says, To God be the glory. In what? In Christ. That's, That's what we expect and that's what he says. But what does he put first? Where is God's glory going to be made manifest? In the church. These are two of the most astonishing statements, claims that the Bible makes about the church, that in the church the glory and the wisdom of God will be made known and revealed to the whole world, to the whole universe, to the heavenly beings, through the Church, the glory of God. And yet it doesn't seem like that very often, does it? It certainly doesn't feel like that. Uh, I don't know, when you think about the branch, is that what you think? That what we're doing week in, week out is making manifest the wisdom and the glory of God? The church is marred by scandals, the church worldwide. The church is put down by the press. And yet I think we see glimpses uh, of the glory of God, don't we? I I don't know uh, how many people uh, watched the Defining Marriage uh, webcast this past week uh, or have caught up with it since, but John Anderson in um, in that program made the observation that before the fight against slavery sorry, through Wilberforce and other evangelical Christians, something like three quarters of the world's population was in one kind of slavery or another. Uh, and that through the influence of people like Wilberforce and, and other uh, evangelicals in that time, slavery, slavery kind of was totally, almost totally overcome, almost totally abolished. Uh, it was the largest human rights movement's Uh, Anderson says, in the history of the world. And it was led by Christians, uh, by people who believed in Jesus. And in things like that we see something, don't we, of the glory of God being made manifest to the world. But maybe the most astonishing thing uh, that Paul says here in Ephesians is not just that God's glory is made manifest in Jesus and in the church I think what's most interesting and maybe most exciting is what he sets it alongside. Look how Paul starts uh, that quote, that that statement in, in verse 20. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. That's uh, such an important thing to say, isn't it? Uh, it's such an important thing to say because we ask and imagine very little for the church. Our hopes for the church are small, and the things that we ask God to do in the church are small as well. I wonder what I wonder what you do ask God to do for the church. Um, If you ask anything, what would you ask God to do for the church if you had the opportunity? I mean, just take our church. Just think about our church only for the moment. What would you ask God to do for the branch? You might ask God to fill the rosters. Uh, that's a good goal, isn't it? You know, that's a, we need that. That's not a, bad, not a bad goal. But Paul says God can do so much more than that. Uh, you might ask for people to turn up to activities that the church puts on. There's nothing more depressing, is there, than, than putting all this effort into organising something and then no one turns up. You know, five, five people turn up. And it takes all the wind out of your sails. You might ask God for that. And yet Paul says that God can do so much more than that. You might, uh, you might not actually ask God to do anything for the church because your hopes for the church are so dashed by years of hard grind and disappointment. Disappointment. Well, Paul says that God can do more than that. God is able to do so much more than we ask and he's able to do so much more than we imagine. I mean, what do you imagine for the church? If you were to take your best goal, the the brightest thing, the brightest idea, the greatest idea that you could ever think of for the church, for our church, what would it be? You might imagine a church with cutting edge music or with old music, with a a 50 piece orchestra and timpanis and who knows what else. You might imagine a church with a new sign that really grabs people's attention and gets people in through the door. You might imagine a new foyer or a new backdrop or a new stage or a new lectern or new chairs. You might imagine a kind of a mini cafe which runs partway through the week and gets people in the doors of the church. You might imagine all kinds of things. Paul says God is able to do so much more than we ask or imagine. But those dreams are such small dreams, really, aren't they? You might have large dreams for the church. You might imagine that God could transform Launceston through the preaching of the Gospel and that thousands of people would be converted and bow the knee to Jesus. And Paul says, God can do so much more than we ask or imagine. What God is able to do through a motley bunch of people like you and me is to bring glory to himself through the church and through Jesus Christ. Glory through reconciling people to himself through Jesus. Glory through transforming churches into communities of people captivated by the love of God. Glory through people being so strengthened by God that they have the power to grasp the heights and the depths and the breadth of the love of God. A church leader, uh, a friend of mine in a, in a mixed denomination, has commented once before that people often ask him whether he's pessimistic about the church. Are you pessimistic about the church? And he always responds is as this Jesus said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I believe him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we pray that you would forgive us for expecting too little of the church. Father, help us to believe Jesus when he said that he will build his church and that the gates of hell won't prevail against it, that nothing will stand in the way of Jesus claiming his bride and washing her and making her perfect and clean and holy and spotless and without blemish. Father, help us to trust that you're able to do more than than all we ask or imagine. Father, please glorify yourself in the church. Glorify yourself in our church, in the branch. Glorify yourself in the faithful churches throughout Launceston and the faithful churches throughout the world. Father, we also pray that you'd help us to be realistic about the church. Help us to labour in a mixed church. Help us to not become complacent about corruption and impurity. And Father, help us not to give in or give up because it's too hard. Help us to work with great patience and without resentment in the hope that you will grant repentance to those who oppose the truth. Lord, help us to have the boldness and the courage to put people who are absolutely corrupt out of the church for the sake of your church and for their sake, Lord, that they might find repentance also. And Father, we pray that you would help us to to work closely with those who call on on your name out of a pure heart. Help us to flee sin and to pursue righteousness, faith and love. Father, we ask all this not for our own sake and not so that we can build our own kingdom here in King's Meadows but so that the name of Jesus would be honoured in all the world. Amen.